welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. We are pleased to be joined by our friend Adam Rittenberg from ESPN.com. Adam covers the whole country in college football, but for many years there was known as the Big Ten guy. And so I wanted to start there. Successful season so far for the conference. I feel like they haven't gotten this much adulation in a while. Ohio State, Michigan, I feel like it's not a surprise that they're highly ranked at this point in the season. How much has Wisconsin surprised you? Yeah, yeah, Stu, it's significant. You know, I was there for their first game against LSU at Lambeau Field, and the way they came out, the way they prepared, the energy they played with, and then the improvement that they showed at certain positions, like the secondary, um, really, really surprised me. I mean, this looked like a season that they'd be fortunate to get to seven, seven wins, and I know that's not the norm for Wisconsin, but they hadn't played a schedule this difficult, not non-conference-wise and conference-wise with some of the crossovers, having both Ohio State and Michigan on the schedule, Iowa, which is coming off of a Rose Bowl appearance, and Nebraska. So, you know, we, know we talked a lot about the difficulty of the schedule, but it, now it's sort of become, well, you know, the, instead of Wisconsin has to go play this team, it's this team has to go play Wisconsin. I mean, you saw how difficult it was for Ohio State to get out of Madison with the win, and the same thing will hold true for Iowa this week, for Nebraska in a couple of weeks. And I think Paul Chris has done one of the better coaching jobs in the country. I think he made a really good hire with Justin Wilcox, the defensive coordinator, and then you're seeing some improvement in areas like the offensive line, which I thought had taken a step back under his predecessor, Gary Anderson, a little bit. And now you're starting to see them you know, run the ball like Wisconsin is accustomed to. You saw that against Ohio State. So, yeah, definitely surprised by them. I feel like because Wisconsin has played so many big games so far, we, we basically know that team at this point. Nebraska is 6-0. and We thought we found out a lot about them when they beat Oregon. Turns out everybody's beating Oregon. Um, at this point, if you had to pick one of the two or maybe throw Iowa in there as well to win the West, who would it be? I think it would be Wisconsin. You know, again, still need to see more from Nebraska and the opinion could change, you know, especially with their road schedule coming up, you know, having to go to Wisconsin where they have not played well in their two appearances as Big Ten members that have been blown out both times. And then to Ohio State um, right after that. You know, the thing talking to coaches in the league that until last week, the, the buzz was, wow, we could always count on mistakes from Tommy Armstrong and he's not making them anymore. That, you know, the good to- or bad Tommy had sort of gone away. Well, bad Tommy sort of came back last week. It was not his best performance, um, you know, by any means. It's a good Indiana defense and improved one um, there in Bloomington. But, you know, just, uh, you know, 10 of 26 passing with a couple of picks, um, just not, not a strong performance from Tommy. So that's what there, a lot of people are looking at going forward because he's still the key to everything. You know, he's so talented physically, arm strength. You know, he can run the ball a little bit. Um, they have good receivers, although Jordan Westerkamp was out last week. You know, getting him back will be key. You know, the feeling in the league is that their defense is just okay, but they're not making a ton of mistakes. And you look at their season last year, Stu, and they found every which way to lose games, and that's not the case anymore. They're finding different ways to win, like last week, where they had to sort of grind it out from a defensive standpoint, or Oregon coming up with the drive at the end, led by Tommy Armstrong to, to, to score the game-winning touchdown. And that's encouraging that they're, um, they're building winning habits instead of losing habits. But as you said, the schedule is you know, unavoidable in conversation about them. You know, the win against Northwestern is looking a little bit better. Indiana, I think, is a pretty good team. Even Wyoming, you know, they're 4-2, and two, but they have not played anybody to the caliber of Wisconsin. So if Wisconsin can beat Iowa this week, and that's a, a huge game kind of under, under radar, under the radar game nationally, I think Wisconsin will be in a good position to win out. Um, and, then, and, then, uh, and then Nebraska would have to, if they do lose to Wisconsin, you know, beat Ohio State 
and then went out with a game still against Iowa on the road on Black Friday to win the division. So it's going to be an interesting race there between, I think, those two. I don't know if Iowa can really get back into it. I'm going to take this rare opportunity to ask somebody about Northwestern who actually follows Northwestern football <laughs> early in the season. I've never seen people so down on Fitz and that staff, and he's got to fire people. And and here we are, them having just scored 54 on Michigan State, the winning record in the conference. How? How did that happen? Yeah, yeah I was one of those people, Stu. You know, and I, they, there are a lot of good coaches there, but I just felt like they had they needed some new blood on that staff because the offense really hadn't looked right for a number of years. I would say it hadn't looked right in, in one form or fashion since you know, Dan Persa's era, you know, because they had switched it up and gone with two quarterbacks. And, you know, then they were a real passing team with Trevor Simeon, who's obviously gone on to the NFL, but they just d didn't have that type of rhythm. Um, but, you know, to their credit, they have, they have found something. I think it really starts with the development of the wide receiver position, which had been down for a very long time. And you're seeing, you know, Austin Carr emerge as a, one of the better receivers in the Big Ten, if not the best right now as far as production. Um, you know, uh, Flynn Nagel is another guy who has emerged at receiver. And, and, uh, and Clayton Thorson, when he's given time to throw the ball, is very effective. And you, could, you saw that against um, Iowa. You saw that against Michigan State. And you know, Justin Jackson has been a productive running back. Maybe doesn't get a lot of attention nationally, but as far as just consistent production, he has done that throughout his career. And you can give him the ball a lot. So I just think the confidence level is up on that side of the ball. I don't know necessarily if the play calling is, is uh, dramatically different, but you know, the fact that they can rely on some receivers and Thorson is gaining some confidence. You know, he played all of last year as a freshman on an offense that wasn't very effective, but at least he gained some experience. And so, you know, I just think from a confidence standpoint, you know, they have to be feeling pretty good about themselves with Indiana coming up this week. Then they have Ohio State and Wisconsin, but then a, a manageable closing schedule with Purdue, Minnesota, and Illinois. So a season that began disastrously with losses to Western Michigan and Illinois State could end up ending on a good note for them. Okay, the flip side of that, what has happened to Michigan State? You know, I, yeah. I had a feeling they might slip back a little bit because the last time they lost, you know, a veteran quarterback, that happened. But I guess I did not foresee this huge drop-off on the defensive side. Right, no, I, me neither. And it, it is hard to diagnose. I think, you know, we talked about Northwestern playing with more confidence. You get the sense Michigan State's losing confidence every week. It just felt, Stu, that, like, they were past this point you know, where they would just sink back to being a, a mediocre or below mediocre program. Because, you know, when you go to three consecutive either playoff or New Year's Six games, BCS, I don't even know what we're going to call it, that level of bowl game, you know, you, you recruited at a higher level. You, you, you stack decent to very good recruiting classes on top of one another. So you thought that the depth there would be okay. I know they've had some injury issues. The offensive line has been kind of musical chairs, but the defense has been the striking part because you know, spending some time with their coaches in the preseason, I know they had a lot of confidence in the depth on the defensive side, especially at linebacker. And then you watch Northwestern last week. You know, there was a play, I believe Northwestern was up 10 or 11 points in the fourth quarter. It was like a third and eight play um, and uh, in Michigan State territory, but one that if they ran the ball, I'd expect them to, you know, kind of punt the ball after that and try to pin Michigan State deep. And it was basic counterplay where Justin Jackson goes for a touchdown. I mean, that, that you just don't see from Michigan State. And BYU is not an explosive offense either, and, and they were able to score uh, quite a few points there on the road. So it's just a, a program that's dealing with a little bit of a crisis right now. 
And, um, you know, you do have to question a little bit, maybe we overvalued the talent that they were bringing in during this really historic run. And maybe they aren't as positioned as well for the future as we thought. I will say this, Mark D'Antonio is a great coach and I think he'll get it figured out eventually, but this is definitely a, a rough stretch for, for the Spartans. All right, well, let's switch gears. Let's look a little bit broader here. The big game this week, Alabama A&M, and really an unusual situation that I haven't seen very often where two top six teams are playing and one is, a, I believe, now a 19-point favorite. If A&M is going to pull this off, what's the scenario where that would happen? Well, yeah, I did a piece uh, today on Alabama's defense, just talking to coaches about what it takes to, to have any success against that crew that's playing so well. And a lot of coaches said you have to win on first down, that it's almost more important first down than third down, especially running the football. So I think Travion Williams becomes a really big figure in this game. Uh, he's been outstanding as a freshman. He actually leads the, the country in rush yards between the tackles by a pretty significant margin. Um, at least among the power five. So I think giving him the ball and, and putting yourself in a position where, you know, it's manageable third downs or, or getting first downs before you get to third down where Alabama's really good, that's going to be key for A&M. And then the turnover thing. I mean, you know, they have 11 turnovers this year. They have to you know, limit those. I don't think they can afford to have maybe more than one in the game, especially because so many of those turnovers have directly led to points for Alabama. Tennessee had only one last week and it led to a touchdown. So anything like that that happens is going to be tough. And then A&M's defense is going to have to play much better against Alabama than they did against Tennessee. I mean, if Tennessee doesn't turn it over so many times, they probably win the game. Um, and uh, and A and M has a loss coming into this one. So you know, the bye week I think came at a good time for them at A and M. You know, the, the big advantage they have is I don't think from a talent standpoint there is a huge gap between them and Alabama. And I think Miles Garrett and Deshaun Hall have to be terrific and, and ideally force Jalen Hurts into some mistakes, which I think is is still possible from a freshman. I mean, you know, he's played great, but I think. Uh, He's still a young guy who could make some decisions that uh, that end up hurting Alabama. It's going to be a tough one, though, for A&M. Adam, just playing off the Alabama note, I, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. I'm going to name four coaches, and you tell me where they're coaching, if they're coaching, in 2017. <laughs> one, Lane Kiffin. Two, Greg Schiano. Three, Larry Fedora. And four, Les Miles. Okay. So Lane Kiffin, you may have to Fedora. Okay, so Kiffin, I believe, is you know putting himself in a pretty good position to get a head coaching job. I mean, there's certainly questions among agents and athletic directors about the maturity level of Lane, but I don't think you can deny what he has done as a as a as a play caller. And I think he'll at least get the opportunity at some of the maybe mid to lower tier Power Five programs to uh, to be a candidate i think if if um if willie taggart leaves south florida that could be a really interesting spot for lane if he doesn't want to you know go to one of the worst uh, lower level power five larry fedora is a guy you know in this market where there could be and i say stress could be not definitely there could be more jobs than like obvious candidates you know, if he goes out and and wins the acc coastal division i think he's a guy who will who will be coveted, you know, especially if there's multiple jobs in the state of Texas. We know there will be one with Baylor, which I think he'd be a candidate. And then maybe even Texas, if it comes open and it doesn't work out with maybe guys who are higher on their list, uh, Fedora could be an interesting name. Uh, who, who else, Bruce? I, I didn't write all these. Uh, Greg Schiano in the last one is Les Miles. Yeah, I think Greg Schiano is another uh, coordinator who will have significant interest. You know, even a program like Purdue, um, I think could look at him and, and see what he did at Rutgers and 
and and see see there's a a path there or at least some interest to to bring him in. Um, you know, I think he's done a great job with Ohio State secondary, which was a bit of a question mark entering the season. Obviously, didn't go well in Tampa Bay, but I think uh, you know his track record at Rutgers, which we've seen what happened to that program since he left, is is something that he'll start to get some interest. So I, I see him coaching next year, and I and I also see Les Miles coaching. I think for Les, the question for him, he's going to have opportunities. It seems like people think, but are they opportunities he wants? You know, would he want a Purdue? Would he want a Kentucky if it opens? Would he want? You know, a uh, you know kind of mid-tier ACC job or, or mid-tier Pac-12 job, or you know, who knows what's going to happen in the Big 12. So um, I think what's good about Les is that he's worked in a lot of different regions. He's a Big Ten guy originally from Michigan, but he coached at Colorado, he coached at Oklahoma State, he coached at LSU, and I think he's a guy that would excite a lot of different fan bases. So I, I think all four of them could end up being head coaches next year. Yeah, Bruce and I are uh, kind of on opposite sides with Les Miles to Purdue. He thinks no way would he ever take that. I don't think it's no way. I just don't know. Purdue has traditionally been conservative financially. You know, whoever's running the show is going to have to step up and go, yeah, we're going to be much more aggressive financially in our commitment to playing at a higher level when the rest of the Big 12 pretty much has done that too. I mean, I still think it's a bit of a long shot, but... I don't know. I could see Les wanting to return to his Midwestern roots. And the other thing is, everybody talks about Purdue like it's just a given that they're always going to be awful. They won a lot of games with Joe Tiller. Now, do you think that's still possible? Or was that a moment of, you know, his offense was so far ahead of the curve in that conference that he just, um, and he had Drew Brees, that he, uh, th- that's not easily going to be easily replicated? Yeah, it won't be easy, but I mean, they are investing a little bit more in their facilities. And Bruce, to your point, I think they realize that after the last two hires, they have to at least show the appearance that we're willing to spend more money and try to attract some of these candidates. But to Stu's point, I think you have to bring in somebody with some type of schematic edge. I mean, it won't be as dramatic as Joe Tiller in 96 when no one was running that type of offense in a major conference, but something that gives you you know, a little bit of uh, X's and O's edge on your opponents. I mean, the Big Ten West is still viewed by coaches as a very winnable division, and coaches always want to know what, what's my path to a league title. It's certainly better at Purdue than even, say, Indiana, even though Kevin Wilson has improved that program in recent years. So um, I think it has to be somebody with some juice, but also somebody with some schematic um, juice, to, to so to speak. And I don't know if Les has that, uh, but I think he's a guy that you know, could look at Purdue or could wait and see what else comes open. We just don't know at this point. Um, it's such a week-to-week thing. Adam, before we let you run, I have one question. I am a huge deep dish fan. You live in Chicago. <laughs> What is your go-to and what's the best kept secret? Are any of these like non-Lou Malnati places? Yeah, um, yeah. I always get the place wrong. It's right by my house. I'm looking it up right now. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can definitely go to like a lot of the um, you know standard Gino's East, Lou Malnati's, Giordano's. But there's a place called Bartoli's Pizza, which is on da- Damon and Addison. And what I like about it is it's, you can get the you know, fairly thick crust, but it's not overwhelming. So it's kind of an in-between um, that uh, you can actually have more than one piece if you're, uh, if you're up for it. So I'm a big fan of Bartoli's. I am not a deep dish fan at all. And it was kind of annoying at Big Ten Media Days that Bruce was like, I did meet somebody at Lou Malnati's the first night, but he was so intent on going back there for lunch or something. <laughs> I, thank, I thank Chris Bielman and Joel Klatt for indulging me the next day at lunch. And uh, it's really weird, Adam. I could not be more different than my podcast host unless he was a woman. We are complete opposites in every way when it comes to music, 
taste. He's a huge Arby's guy. I don't get it. I'm not a uh, huge Arby's guy, but I'm okay with Arby's. Let the, let the record show you've been an Arby's. You're a big Arby's guy. Where do you stand on Arby's, Adam? I, I don't know if, when the last time I was in an Arby's, though. I feel, although I remember, Stu, the first time I ever saw an Arby's was in Cincinnati, your hometown. Uh, we were there visiting family, and I didn't know what it is. I grew up mostly in California, so um, I guess that was maybe uh, my introduction. Yeah, you're you're from from here. You know, you you've spent uh, now. I associate you so much with Chicago now that I I sometimes forget about your ties to uh, to the Bay Area. What do you miss most, if anything, about the Bay Area? Wow, I think the food in some ways. I mean, Chicago's got great food, but like, there's so much diversity. Like, I grew up in Berkeley, and like, you could get anything. I mean, just walking walking within like two miles. So it's a little bit. I mean, you can get a lot of that in Chicago, but it's um, in Berkeley's. Like, if you like kind of weird ethnic food, I mean, you cannot do much better than that. And the weather too, especially in when it gets after late November. You know, we've uh, we've we tried, but it's uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's 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 brutal. It's, you know, it's brutal. So. I wonder if you would really recognize Berkeley, Oakland, and Oakland now. Um, it's just changed so much, from what I understand, in just the last few years, um, including. The football team at Berkeley, which runs a completely different offense than it used they to. They do, but that's, definitely. That's a to- that's a story for another time. Uh, we know you got to run. We thank you so much for coming on. You can find Adam's work obviously at ESPN.com. You want to tell people about where they can see you soon? Sure. Yeah, and I'll uh, doing a Sports Center tonight and ESPNU tomorrow. So occasionally on TV when they scrape the bottom the bottom of the barrel, and then uh, we do our own podcast, which I also have to plug a championship yes. drive which I really enjoy being a part of. But big fan of your guys' uh, show and your work, and great to be on and hope to be back. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Hopefully we'll see you on the road, and we can all get deep dish pizza, and Stu can bring his Arby's with him in a bag. For the record, before we get to the emails, I've eaten at Arby's probably twice in the last five years, but thanks for continuing to bring that up. You did trumpet in your columns, though, before, or online. I was a huge Arby's guy growing up in college. Then it kind of dissipated for a while this kind of this kind of at odds to me with that you were a huge arby's guy and there was no like big marijuana consumption usually that you know makes people eat stuff well you they- heard adam mention that the first time he saw it was in cincinnati i think it might be that even though it's a national chain for some reason we cincinnatians are more accepting of it than you know oh no you're our- painting with a broad brush we're gonna get emails from cincinnatians go hey don't lump me in. With no, sc- with I can Arby's. tell you one of the times I ate at Arby's recently is when I was in Cincinnati very briefly and got together with my uh, brother and his family and they wanted to go to Arby's. So it's, uh, it's just a Mandel. Maybe. Thing. I don't know. They're keeping it. They're staying in business somehow. One day I'm going to try the more exotic things on that menu. But for the most part, I stick to the French dip. Back to the podcast in a second, but Bruce, we've got a new sponsor this week. It's not Arby's, is it, Sue? It is not Arby's. It is Cricket, C-R-I-Q-U-E-T, Cricket, which was nice enough to send both of us one of their polo shirts, which I found to be very comfortable. Are you wearing it right now, Stu? No, I am not wearing it right now, but it's very comfortable. And by the way, Cricket is the perfect mix of old school style and modern design inspired by guys like Nicholas, Palmer, JFK, and Dean. Their super soft, 100% certified organic cotton makes their shirts as comfortable on the 19th hole as they are on the 18th. With a better fit, the shirts aren't too baggy. They aren't too skinny. The removable collar stays help keep the collar looking nice and crisp. No more bacon collar. It's the perfect shirt you can wear on and off the golf course for a great look. 
All right, Bruce, for 20% off your first purchase, visit cricketshirts.com slash audible and enter promo code audible at checkout. That's C-R-I-Q-U-E-T shirts.com slash audible for 20% off your first purchase. All right, Rob Stone, tell us what we're going to do now. It's the mailbag from a computer, so not literally a bag, but just mail. Okay, Bruce, before we start reading the emails, I have a bit of a PSA I got to get out there, which is please try to send about, Shouldn't the PSA be don't have the exotic things on the RV? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll let you know once I try it. Your emails. We love getting your emails and reading your emails, but they're getting very, very long. And this is a podcast, and we can't read the entire email when it goes on and on and on. Your general guideline, I say, to follow is once you get done writing it, read it out loud and see how long it would take us to read it out loud. And if it seems like it's going on for too long, maybe self-edit it a little bit, which is what I try to do with some of these questions. All right, Bruce, I'm going to start you off with a curveball. You haven't seen this one. Steve Drips, who came in last week, said, I thought you guys missed out talking about one of the more interesting plot lines of this year's Apple Cup. Boise State is currently undefeated with a win over Washington State. This win looks better every week since Wazoo keeps on winning. If both Washington schools win out until the Apple Cup and Wazoo wins the Apple Cup and then Wazoo wins the Pac-12, wouldn't an undefeated Boise State have a shot at the playoff? That's a lot of ifs. It is. Um, I'm kind of with him on that logic. That's part of the reason why I bumped Boise State into my top 10 last week. I mean, I watched that game. Now, it was a close game, came down to the end. But Boise State did win the game. Uh, it's helping Boise State also that Oregon State doesn't look so god-awful anymore. I did that game, and they crushed them in Corvallis uh, when they were the worst team in the Pac-12. That probably didn't hold much weight, but now at least they've been a little respectable. It all, you know, I think San Diego State's a pretty good team, so if they get them at the end, I mean, it's not, I, I think the Mountain West is not a, you know, is not a bad league. But you look at it, you know, I think the fact that if Wazoo is to beat Washington late in the year. Their body of work would be better than that one game. So you saw Boise State in person. You also saw Houston up close in the preseason. Obviously, Boise State's in better position now than Houston is, but just if you're comparing the two, because I've always thought of Boise State as being a little bit more blue-collar, whereas you watch Houston and you see a lot of athletes uh, jump off. Houston has better personnel on defense. They're certainly better on the defensive line. You know, Tanner Vallejo is a good linebacker for, for Boise, but I think that they're, I think they're probably better in the front seven at Houston than Boise is. Boise State has a terrific running back who gets overshadowed somewhat by Donnell Pumphrey and all these other guys. Jeremy McNichols, excellent. He's a good receiver. He's really good. They got two good receivers outside. Uh, Brett Rippon's a good quarterback, a good young quarterback. I mean, I would love to see that matchup. My, my feeling is Houston's probably a little better if Greg Ward's healthy because I think they're better on defense, but I think it's a close matchup, to be honest. And you're right about that budding uh, running back rivalry in the Mountain West. Donnell Pumphrey getting all the love right now, and understandably so. Um, He's number one in the country in rushing. Jeremy McNichols is fifth. They're both in the top three of all-purpose. So I kind of hope they do uh, square off at the end of the season. Playoff is... uh, to answer his question, very, very remote. If Wazoo wins the, runs the table and Wazoo goes, I guess it would be 11-2 and two and have lost the first two games, one against a good but still an FCS team and then one at Boise State, I don't think Wazoo is going in if they're 11-2. and two. 
But in your mind, would Boise at 13-0 and trump them with a head-to-head win at home? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, you know, the committee is supposed to emphasize head-to-head, then you have that right there. Uh, I would think Washington State would be penalized pretty heavily for the FCS loss, although obviously that's a pretty good FCS team. So, I, I, you know, it'll be interesting. The first committee rankings are in two weeks. If Washington State hasn't lost before then, it'll be interesting to see where the committee ranks them, you know, because you'll get a sense right there of how much weight they're placing on that uh, Eastern Washington loss if they're, you know, significantly higher or significantly lower um, than the uh, traditional polls value them. Okay. Uh, Hey, Bruce and Stu, I was in Madison for the Ohio State-Wisconsin game this weekend. It was a great atmosphere for college football and an amazing game. However... During Wisconsin's overtime possession, they displayed a message on the Jumbotron that severe weather was in the area. Since the Badgers were unable to punch it in against my Buckeyes defense, the game ended. However, on the way out of the stadium, the lightning, thunder, and rain started. This continued until at least 2 a.m. My question is, what would have happened had Wisconsin scored in force a second overtime? Just curious if you guys know what the leagues or networks have planned in such an event. Uh, because of the time, that that put it, it would put it in a different place. Because obviously, as we saw with the Oklahoma Ohio State game, it there's protocols in place which with lightning would mean you know you could be talking about a three a.m. Uh, res, you know the game resuming at three a.m. That's a really extreme example, and I can't think of one like that. But there have definitely been Big Twelve games that were halfway through the fourth quarter and went into a two hour rain delay. Uh, preferably not one that started that late. I, I don't think they have a choice. You know, the, the policy is pretty cut and dry in terms of uh, once the lightning is within a certain distance. I mean, there Absolutely. are baseball games that drag on till have the dragged on to like 3 or 4 a.m. I mean, it would be kind of surreal to see a college game play out that way. Especially since Ohio State, uh, I just saw happen to see Urban Meyer say this on Monday, they got back from that game at 5 a.m. So imagine if there yeah, was a delay know. on top of that. I'm not sure what else they could do because Ohio State plays Penn State, you know, on the road this week. I don't know how they would have. Uh, I think they would have had to play it right then and there. They, they would. I don't think there's a alternative. All right, next. Um, Stu and Bruce, this is from Corey Giesling. Uh, thank you for having such a great show. I listen to it on the long treks from Greenville, South Carolina to Nashville every week. And it makes the drive much better. I wonder what he's doing in Nashville, hanging out with Clay Travis. Sorry, I'm like reading the question. I wanted to get uh, your thoughts on something. I understand JT Barrett is a very good quarterback and now the all-time leader for touchdowns at Ohio State. But every time I watch him play, I can't help but thinking that he would be maybe the third best QB in the ACC behind Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson in terms of talent and importance to their team. Additionally, it seems that the pendulum has finally shifted among many fans and recruits to understanding that spread offenses lead to gaudy stats, while pro-style systems lead to better players and pro prospects. I'm going to take umbrage with that in a second. Do voters consider the full skill sets of these players and nuances of the offenses these players run, or is it mainly done based on stats, program prestige, and hype? First, I would say I would agree with the part where if JT Barrow was in the, in the ACC, he'd probably be the third best quarterback. Yeah. I mean, Those are two really good quarterbacks he mentioned. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I would say an importance. Right now, Urban Meyer is running the heck out of JT Barrett. He's done it the last two weeks. So, And I feel like when a, when a coach runs a quarterback that much, let's say this. I mean, I know he struggled as a passer the last couple of weeks. 
you know, he is the leader of that offense. He and Pat Elfline are the leaders of the team. They're very young. So I don't want to, I don't want to take away from the importance of what he means to Ohio state. As far as, you know, the pro style stuff, Hey, Dak Prescott's a good counter to that. Dak Prescott did not play in a pro style offense, was not under center. And he's starting out his career fantastically in the NFL uh, but the other part of this about do voters, and I think he means Heisman voters, uh, factor in the skill set and nuance based on, yeah, I think they really do. Because um, if you if you didn't, I think you would have had a Texas Tech quarterback win a Heisman already. Yeah, I definitely think the voters kind of are very leery of the offenses that pass the ball all the time, like a Texas Tech. Um, you know, Pat Mahomes has has. Now it's kind of moot, but you know, even early in the season, it was not garnering any Heisman buzz, and he's a very talented player. Um, I feel like the Baylor quarterback, RG three, obviously got a lot of. He won the Heisman, but the guys after him, like Bryce Petty, I feel like were never really taken all that seriously. Uh, I mean, Deshaun Watson plays in a spread offense, so I, I don't know. And they're not as traditional. The lines are not as traditionally drawn now because certain teams use a lot of different things, and I don't think you know. I don't want to parrot Jim Mora here, but uh, I think it's not as cut and dry a lot of times as what, what teams so I was, do. So this, this, I should have done this a long time ago. I mean, we're going to do this on the spot. You ready? I just pulled up the NFL passing leaders. Let's just go through it real quick and see how many played in a, just off the top of our head. And granted, some of these guys have been in the league for a long time. How many played in a pro, primarily pro style or primarily spread in college? Ready? Matt Ryan, pro style. Eli Manning, pro style. Andy Dalton, TCU 2010, what would you consider that? I think it would be more right, of a first so style. Three for three. Than what they're doing now. But Drew Brees was definitely in a spread. Drew Brees at Purdue Andrew was Luck was pro style. Kirk Cousins was pro yeah. style. Ben Roethlisberger was pro style. Miami of Ohio. Uh, Stafford pro style. Phillip Rivers pro style. Derek Carr. Pro, uh, that was definitely the spread, right? Yeah. No, I don't know if I would call it definitely the spread. Oh, he was, it was the, um, he was throwing it 50 times a game. Yeah, but just because you throw it a ton doesn't mean they were really good on offense. They had two terrific receivers. I mean, I think there was elements of it, but I don't think it's like, you know, then again, the spread thing to me is a little bit of a misnomer because there's so many different kinds of spreads. You know, Mike Leach's spread is different than what you would say Art Riles' was, and it's certainly different than what Chip Kelly's. So it's interesting because those were, the leaders, actually, that was passing yards, which is not the greatest way to look at this. But um, why don't you look in? At, at I QB just rating. did that, and so <laughs> and got a little thrown off because Tom Brady's number one. He's played what two games, and then a punter, Tressway, is number two. But anyway, yes, yeah, so you start to see more of the. Once you do it this way, you see Sam Bradford, Dak Prescott, uh, Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz, uh, no, that's a no, that's style. pro style. But the first two guys, Sam Bradford played in more of a spread, and certainly Dak yeah. Prescott. Trevon Boykin's on here, although he's thrown nine passes. Uh, Trevor Simeon. It's still Marcus Mariota. It's it's predom- Mariota. It's predominantly pro style guys. So, but I think it's it's shifting, and Dak Prescott is a great example of that. In fact, he's been quoted about that quite a bit recently. He's very uh, adamant that it's that Mississippi State prepared him for it, and the playbooks aren't that much different and whatnot. All right, what do you got? I got this from Bobby in Williamsport, PA. Stu, do you know what's in Williamsport? The Little League World Series. Yeah, that's an example. 
love the podcast. Uh, Stu, you and Bruce are very fun to listen to. To the topic, though, which you can tell by my subject line, Alabama versus Texas A&M. After the last two weeks getting to see A&M and then Alabama play the same team, Tennessee, radically different results, how much of a realistic chance do the Aggies have of pulling off the upset? It's almost so let's focus, since we talked about it with Adam, let's focus on the specific element of is it a smart idea to base your feelings about an upcoming game on, well, A&M needed overtime to beat Tennessee, Alabama blew them out, therefore Alabama must be a lot better than Texas A&M. I don't think you can really do it that way because I think different weeks happen. I, like I said before the game last week, I didn't think Tennessee had much left in the tank after the run they had been on. Uh, Texas A&M now gets Miles Garrett more healthy than he was in the in the UT game, and also uh, they're coming off a bye week. You know, I'm feel pretty good about picking Texas A&M at least against the spread. I mean, I was tempted. And I might have done it on Joel Klatt's breaking the huddle show on Tuesday of picking AM outright. You're gonna you need to do that then. You need to take me off the hook for having picked Tennessee last week. Go ahead and pick the nineteen and a half point underdog outright. You picked Tennessee to win I last week? I, I did. missed that. I know that sounds really dumb. Did you say that on the podcast or did you save it for it was your in the picks column? column. I it sounds really dumb in hindsight, but I thought, you know, tough road game for Alabama and whatnot. I did not fully take into account a just how badly injured Tennessee is, and B, just how freaking dominant Alabama is. At the end of the day, anybody can lose if they don't come out and play their A game. You know, and I feel like Alabama has been very sharp all season with the exception of the first half against Ole Miss, um, which is frankly unusual. You know, you would expect a team to come out one week and just be flat. And if they do that against A&M and A&M comes out, you know, amped up off the bye week, anything's possible. But Alabama at its best right now, I don't see A&M or anybody in the conference touching them. Uh, I don't know. They, they look great last week. I just think that there are more ebb, ebbs and flows to a season. That's what I'm saying. You know, you, they've looked great to this point. Who I, I will say Jalen Hurts, uh, as great as he's been, hasn't had to deal with a lot of pressure. Uh, Derek Barnett got to him early in that game, and then that was about it. Now you're going up against easily the, the best pair of pass rushing defensive ends in, in the SEC and maybe college football and Garrett and Hall it would be interesting if Alabama's O-line struggled and those guys kind of messed up the pocket a lot and see if the true freshman would finally make true freshman mistakes, which he's largely avoided to this point. The one thing that gives me more pause about this game is I keep thinking back to the bowl game last year, where another freshman Lamar Jackson ate them up and ate that defense up. Now, I think they're better, certainly in the secondary, than they were last year, and I think they're more mature. But they had a they had a month to prepare for Lamar Jackson, and they knew he was good. Maybe they didn't realize he was that good. Um, you know, can Jalen Hurts and, and Alabama exploit it? The other thing, which I feel I'm curious to see, is the area where Alabama, and this is the, the one knock on them. I know we hear a lot about, oh, yeah, they struggle with running quarterbacks. Yeah, well, so do a lot of people. But – you got to take shots on them downfield. You know, Ole Miss is not afraid to do that, and they have given them problems and beaten them two of the last three years. A&M has the receivers who can do damage. I mean, you look at Josh Reynolds. You look at Christian Kirk. I mean, they got they got some firepower outside. It's not just Travion Williams. So, again, 
this is this is it too. When you said you got to do it, you got to take me off the, you know, I'm like thinking, you know, what's the point? You, you know, you're going to pick them to cover. Do you just go, ah, I'm going to put all my chips to the table and just say, I'm going to take the shot and say, hey. I think it's not, it's just not fun to pick chalk all season long. So I would, I would definitely commend you for doing that. But I'm about to read you something. Hopefully it won't dissuade you. I know you're a big fan of pro football focus, right? And uh, I've really gotten into their college coverage this year. Um, Frankly, I don't know how they do all this grading and everything so quickly. They did an interesting Mm -hmm. article this week, the biggest weakness on every top 10 team. And Texas A&M, I think we all acknowledge, is a lot better on defense this season than they have been in the past. But they did have Mm -hmm. that 600-something yard game that Tennessee had on them. Here's a stat I would not have guessed. It says Texas A&M's weakness is tackling. No team has missed more tackles than Texas A&M's 90 coming into Week 7. and they. How many did they miss against Alvin Kamara in Tennessee? Um, let's see if that's in here. A lot. No team has missed more tackles than Texas A&M's 90 coming into Week 7, and they've whiffed on 21.3% of their attempts, third highest in the nation. Their 31-miss effort against Tennessee in Week 6 nearly cost them their undefeated season. So a third of their missed tackles were in that one game. Safeties, Armani Watts and Justin Evans lead all safeties with 15 and 14 missed tackles, respectively. And while both players have played well overall, the tackling must be better on the back end. So if A&M can get to Hurts, like I just said, then great. If he has time to throw to his receivers, and if there are holes for the running backs to run and they get into the open field, there could be a lot of Alabama 60, 70-yard plays in this game. Our last question, last David question, Perry from Perry, Belton, Texas. Texas. Bruce and Stewart, Bruce and Stewart. Monday, on the, Monday on the podcast, Stewart was of the opinion that Texas will end up in the Big Ten and Oklahoma in the SEC. I'm curious as to why those conferences and not the ACC or Pac-12. Also, OU has a natural partner with Oklahoma State. If Texas goes to the Big Ten, who is the natural partner to make things even out? I kind of explained this in the mailbag this week. So when the Pac-10 wooed texas and oklahoma last time and it almost happened i feel like the pac-10 was in a better position to do that then than they are now because the pac-12 network was just a a vision in larry scott's eyes at that point that he was selling now it's come to fruition and i don't feel like the pac-12 would be as attractive a conference for either of those to join as it was then i mean it just hasn't for all the talk he hasn't been able to really overcome the limitations of the time zones and, and all that stuff. So, you know, if you're Texas and Oklahoma, while I'm sure if they joined the Pac-12, they would get a much better TV contract with better windows, they'd still end up playing quite a few 10:30 Eastern games, right, against Arizona State or Oregon State or whoever that may be. I think the Big Ten makes sense for Texas for one reason, academics. They think of themselves as a strong academic school, and the Big Ten cares a lot about academics. Doesn't I the think- Pac-12 care a lot about academics? They do. And by the way, in both of these cases, you know, that's, that's about, your big 10 bias. Cause you went to Northwestern and you're kind of puffing out your chest for getting Stanford. No, I'm, I'm saying that the big 10, there was a requirement at one point that they had to be members of the AAU and then Nebraska had their strip, their membership stripped, right. I think right mm-hmm, after they got picked, that. something like yeah. that. But I just think that that's a more natural marriage. Uh, and then, you know, look, could, could you find a way to get both Texas and Oklahoma in the big 12? Maybe. Um, but I feel like OU is a little more, uh, I, I think there's been, you know, when the whole thing was going on a few years ago and everybody was kind of looking out for their own interests, I think that was something that really intrigued Oklahoma. Of course, 
I assume whenever this day comes, David Bourne will no longer be in charge. And uh, do you think that would be a, like, like let's say if David Bourne's ninety five and still somehow in charge? Do you think people would go? <laughs> eh, I don't know if I want to deal with him at the boardroom table anymore. Maybe. I mean, he is definitely uh, made some enemies throughout this. Pro- I thought that Iowa State AD Jamie Pollard, who went on a radio interview in Iowa in Des Moines, I thought it was very telling that he kind of publicly called him out. Um, mm-hmm. on two occasions in that interview. I listened to the interview. It was fascinating. Uh, the first was more vague where he said something effective. He just kept saying how the ADs have always wanted to stay at 10. If they just listened to the ADs, this never would have become a thing. And he specifically said, I think the best thing for the Big 12 would be if people who think they know what they're talking about would just stop talking and let the ADs do their job. So that is clearly a reference to him. And then at another point, when he was kind of recounting this whole process, he said, well, when President Bourne made the comments that he did, it forced Bob Bowlesby to begin this expansion process. And, of course, the comment that got the most mileage was when he said, without Texas and Oklahoma in the room, the Big 12 is in the Mountain West. We're all making $3 million a year. So Ouch. very frank and uh, self-deprecating comment at that. And, uh, oh, he asked about partners. Yes, Oklahoma State definitely would follow OU. Yeah, Texas, that's an interesting one because I don't think the Big Ten would be interested in Texas Tech. But with politics in the state of Texas being what they are, if when that day comes and Texas is going to try to go somewhere else, there are a lot of politicians in that state that are going to want to make sure that their particular Texas school doesn't get left behind. But, you know, Texas Tech would seem more likely to me than one of the private schools, TCU or Baylor. All, All right. that is a very long ways off and not as certain as everybody makes it out to seem because – of two things that we should mention, Texas, the Longhorn Network. Um, that's not going to jibe with the Big Ten Network, so they'd have to figure something out there. And the idea that Texas just really likes being, you know, the king of the, the table. Dog. Yeah. yeah. You want to go into a conference with Ohio State and Michigan, you know, it's uh, or whatever, you know, the SEC be one of seven big dogs. It's hard to predict how that would play out. How many podcasts do you think we can go – without discussing some form of Big 12 expansion disillusion. <laughs> so I, uh, I counted it up, and I went on my archive page and counted it up. There were 20, since May or April, I had written or done a podcast on the Big 12 20 times. And this week's mailbag was the 21st, and now I guess this counts as the 22nd. So I think we're done. You know, I think I think we're done at this too. point. Yeah, I don't think there's much else to talk about. This this is the end, really. I mean, after six years of this, this is the end of realignment for probably until sometime 2022, 20, 23, 24, somewhere in that range. So I don't know what we're going to talk about in this offseason instead. We may not get the traffic or the clicks. I wonder if all these BYU fans would go, all right, time to unfollow Jake Trotter. I don't need to hear from him anymore. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. I would think a lot of... Not just BYU, a lot of those schools fans have probably been following Big 12 writers, and, and now they don't need to anymore. Sorry, Drake. We'll stay in your corner. So. All right, let's talk about this weekend's plans. Where will you be? I will be in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, it will be an air raid fest. Lincoln Riley comes home. So does Baker Mayfield. Yeah, what do you think that's going to – seriously, what do you think it's going to be like in the stadium with Baker Mayfield? Are they going to boo him or are they going to cheer him? Oh, I don't think they're cheering him at all. And if if James, his dad, shows up, they're definitely not cheering him. Right. Uh, I'd be curious to see. Last year at the um, at the Orange Bowl, a couple of days before one of the media availabilities, Baker pretty much called out 
the Lubbock Avalanche uh, beat writer who's been on the beat for a long time is Don Williams and just kind of ripped him because I think he had done a story that, you know, was critical of the Mayfield mm. and, you know, with Baker, who knows? I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me if he, if he, you know, in the end of the game, if he brought that back up or something like that. I mean, with him, it's, you know, he, he uses everything he can and seems to relish it all. So uh, I want to see how Texas Tech responds. They had a, a you know, a, a dreadful performance last week. West Virginia whipped them. I'm excited to get down there and, and see it all. So it's a game on Big Fox. I'll be with uh, Joe Davis and Brady Quinn. And it's fun working with those guys. So um, A primetime game on Big Fox. A primetime. Now, I got to admit, the one thing I am disappointed about is uh, – this week, and it's not, it's not a huge, huge game, but it's still a matchup of two top 25 teams. We talked about A&M and, and Alabama, but I am very, very curious about what's going on in Baton Rouge because I spent two years in Oxford when Ed Ogeron was there. He's obviously the interim head coach at LSU, and now his old school is coming in there. Most of the guys on that staff at Ole Miss were guys on his staff. Um, you know, Like I said, it's top 25 game. It's the first of five Top 25 opponents for LSU coming up. Top 25 up. game because the Pulsers left 3-3 three and three Ole Miss in the rankings. Come on now. Um, no, I haven't heard much talk about that game other than from you, but it clearly... I think it depends who you follow. I mean, if you follow a bunch of LSU beat writers or SEC people, you hear a lot. If you don't, you probably won't. Um, yeah, that's true. I think that... Uh, you never followed back guys after college baseball season ends, do you? <laughs> no, That's what you I, I, I do. I do. I follow plenty of LSU people. No, it's it's interesting because there's a lot of enthusiasm in Baton Rouge right now over this team and and how much better the offense has looked. But it's been against Missouri and against Southern Miss. So so you know this is going to be uh, a big moment for Ed Orgeron and for LSU and for Ole Miss. They need this to start salvaging the season because I, I think people are going to be really turned off there if they're suddenly three and four with a team that has won 10 games each of the past two no nine games and 10 games uh, last year and gone to New Year's Six Bowls. And they're not satisfied with 500-type seasons there. Yeah, and Leonard Fournette returns, which is you know his expected return. He's been full speed at practice the last couple of days, so I'm curious to see how he comes back. Where are you going to be? You're going to be back in L.A., I assume? for No, I'm going to do something I haven't done all season and probably won't get to the rest of the season and spend a weekend at home. Uh, but I will be doing our Facebook Live shows via Skype, so... Uh, we will still be doing those throughout the day, so keep an eye out for those on Facebook, on CFB, on Fox. As always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and leave us a five-star re- review if you feel so inclined. And then for emails, send those to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And please, concise, more concise the better. We'll see you next time. <laughs>